he would tell me that, look, when you're buffing the floor, you have to be one with the floor. And I couldn't figure out what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> what does it mean to be one with the floor? He, he will be whistling and taught me how to buff the floor. And he would create this shiny sheen on the floor, on this, this tile and marble floor. And I was just amazed at how cheery and kind of optimistic about life he was, despite of his station in life. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am very happy to welcome Faisal Hawk to the My Fourth Act podcast. Faisal was born in Bangladesh and came to the US at the age of 17. He is an accomplished serial entrepreneur, a noted thought leader, technology innovator, and an advisor to CEOs, board of directors, and the US federal government. His number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lift, Fostering the Leader in You Amid Revolutionary Global Change, was just released. Faisal's marvelous book, Everything Connects, initially published by McGraw-Hill in 2014, will be released by Fast Company Publishing later this year, re-released. So Faisal is having a moment this year. Welcome, Faisal. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Akim. Oh, it is my pleasure. And I, what I want to get into is the fact that in the spirit of your most earlier book, Everything Connects, you have so much going on in different aspects of your life and how you manage all of that is of interest to me and hopefully to our listeners. But, but for folks who don't know you, here's a question I, I love to ask every guest. When you were a young boy or teenager growing up in Bangladesh, did you have an idea of who you wanted to be when you grew up? Not really, but I would say sort of, because, you know, I mean, when you grow up in uh, Southeast Asia and you come from the culture I come from, you know, you're pressured by your parents and your family members and, you know, whatever, that you have to become an engineer, a doctor or, or a lawyer, one of those things. So I guess I was cultivated in my head that I'll be an engineer when I left back home that's what I ended up studying. But, you know, my father is a civil engineer, uh, was a civil engineer. He's retired, obviously, by now. He wanted me to also study civil engineering or become an architect, something to that nature. And he never wanted me to leave back home. He wanted me to go to his engineering school yeah. uh, back home, which I didn't. And I left home and I started to wanted to study computer-related, something computer-related. I started with computer engineering, then moved to computer science, but never graduated, which is a story by in itself. I guess I wanted to be, be an engineer of some kind, and that was what was hammered into my head. Even though I, so it, and you know, as life goes, you, you have a lot of side roads. You ended up where you ended up. Well, you made this wonderful little throwaway comment, but I never graduated. And that caught my attention because obviously part of following a traditional narrative is 
Well, of course, we're supposed to graduate. How did that come about, then, not graduation? When I came to U.S., it was a very hard struggle because I came here against my parents' wishes. I didn't have a lot of money. I saved up some money before I coming here because I was a kind of a budding entrepreneur. Even by the age of 14, 15, I was selling stereo equipment and saved up some money. And <laughs> that's kind of how I got here. And I just didn't realize how expensive the between the tuition and living expenses, all that would be. School was hard. I was working full time and I was taking computer science, which by in itself is pretty tough. Yeah. And I was working uh, in graveyard shift as a janitor. But I ended up in University of Minnesota from University of Illinois in Carbondale. And there I uh, started to develop some software product and started exploring some stuff with a local consulting company. And I started this and I saw this emergence of PC and this whole notion of network computers and whatnot. And I was kind of ahead of my time. I uh, developed this demo and I wanted to come and work for Wall Street, Wall Street farm, some sort of a Wall Street farm. Yeah because I want to get into a financial market. So my, this demo ended up offering me five job offers in 90s, you know, when there was actually a recession. I didn't have a resume, but I had this demo. Uh, so I got five, six job offers, most of them from Wall Street firms, like a traditional right. trading, trading firms or financial firms. But I also had a job offer from Pitney Bowes in Connecticut. That's where I still live. You know, I ended up working for their R&D group and they offered me a job before I could even graduate. And they said, well, you can finish your studies at a later time. I never got back to it. And since then, it's been a whirlwind <laughs> journey. I uh, dropped out of college uh, right after my uh, junior year, starting in senior year. Oh, that's, that's, that's beautiful about that story. There's something else you snuck in just before that I, I remember you and I have met before, So I, I've, but I forgot about this part of your life. And in the spirit of everything connects, you mentioned that you worked as a janitor for a while. What did you learn about yourself and other people when you were working as a janitor, as a young man who arrived here from Bangladesh? You know, it was very humbling because... I don't come from a rich family, but I, we, I come from an educated, somewhat middle-class family. And back where I come from and in, in that culture, at least you know, during that time, being a janitor is very frowned upon. I mean, like, who the hell works as a janitor and cleans other people's toilet, right? It was very humbling. And my work was, uh, I had two shifts. You know, one was a graveyard shift, which was really cleaning the arena, basketball arena and baseball arena. And it's just disgusting. I mean, (laughs) you can imagine after a game, it's really disgusting. And then the other, the cushy part of it was cleaning office space and cleaning up the toilets of the office space, which was a little better. So it was very humbling. But culturally, you know, what happened, I, this was in Southern Illinois Carbondale. So I got exposed to this, uh, the African-American community and my shift uh, supervisor was this um, old black man in his uh, 60s, you know, and he was the most cheery guy I've ever met in my life. He would come, he would waltz around like uh, midnight and I would, we would all kind of be there. 
and it'll be coming and whistling. And I couldn't figure out what, what is so great about working as a shift supervisor at a graveyard shift in a university campus. And he taught me a couple of lessons. One thing he taught me, and I guess this was the beginning of my affinity towards a mindfulness, which I didn't realize at that time. I was yeah. too young. He would tell me that, look, when you are buffing the floor, you have to be one with the floor. And I couldn't figure out what the hell is he talking about? What does it mean to be one with the floor? He, he will be whistling and taught me how to buff the floor. And he would create this shiny sheen on the floor, on this, this tile and marble floor. And I was just amazed how cheery and kind of optimistic about life he was, despite of his station in life. That was fantastic learning point and a very needed learning point because it taught me a couple of lessons. It's like the, a little spark of my, what mindfulness really means, number one. And number two is that regardless of your station in life, it has no relevance in terms of your happiness. You can be anywhere and achieve happiness, at least joy for that particular moment and time, right? So so that was quite a, and not to mention in humbling experience coming from where I come from and diving into that, that kind of a situation. Where, where my thought went, besides really enjoying the story, is that we can find teachers who can teach us everywhere if we're willing to For be sure. taught, right? And you were sure. willing to be taught. So that's what I love about that story. The other thing, since we met, you know, maybe nine, 10 years ago, I... What resonates with me about you is that you are, you talked about being the computer guy, the software guy, the engineer, and you have a deep spiritual part of you. And you talked about mindfulness and, and you're a columnist in many places. You wrote for Business Insider, from a fast company who published your most recent book and your next book. And your language connects something that seems to not obviously be connected for many people. Would you, would you just draw some of those connections and how you, in your own life, bridge your interest in something that's a very technical process with, with uh, being one with the floor, so to speak? <laughs> sure. I think as we get older, we discover different facets of our interest and life and and whatnot you know when i was back home i need a you know and that's kind of what triggered me to write everything connects which i'll explain in a minute i would read these really very deep literature bengali literature which is my language bengali is a very rich culture and it has got a very old heritage of of um, old school thinking and draws wisdom from many different parts religious and otherwise, Sufism and Buddhism, Hinduism and Islam, other other kind of things. So there was derivative of Sanskrit. So I used to constantly read this literature and it kind of stayed tucked away. And I lost it when I got here for several years because I was just in the mode of survival and I wasn't mature enough to kind of think through all that stuff. So as years gone by, what has happened when I got my first job, I was actually quite good at it. And success kind of almost came naturally. And I was managed to start a business, which I ended up uh, merging with GE and then 
got started my next venture, which got funded by Netscape at that time and funded by Gartner Group. And I was quite successful at it. And then I um, raised a lot of money from quote unquote venture capitalists. And mm-hmm. and by the time I raised money from venture capitalists, I was only 26 years old by that by then. When you hear these Silicon Valley stories now, left and right, but during that time, it was just beginning of that kind of a, that crazy rise, as you can imagine. And I became quite arrogant, you know, and because I was written up everywhere. And I, at that young stage, I was in boardrooms of MasterCard and Amex and IBMs and you know, the best of the best Fortune 500 companies. And then I got fired from my own company. The VCs took over my company, threw me out. We were not getting along, which is a story by in itself. This, this was very humbling. So I vowed that I would never be an entrepreneur again. Just hang up my shingle and that is it. So while I was doing that, I, I started to feel my real transformation. You, you talk about uh, fourth act. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. this was probably the act, end of act one for me. And I started to think about what to do next. And I wrote my first book, which was somewhat technical and business nature, arguing that that business models that we're seeing with technology, it's really not sustainable because it's a lot of hype. And this was 1999. So right after that, the the bubble happened, the internet bubble happened. It was published by Cambridge University Press and I got a lot of notoriety. I mean, it was a different kind of notoriety because it was an intellectual and academic notoriety. And I started my next company and that went on for a while and then we had that financial crisis in 2008, uh, mm-hmm. 2000, you know, between 2008 and 2011. I started to see profound change in me. I also got exposed to a wide variety of travel. By that time, I pretty much traveled every part of the world. And I had a uh, friend. He passed away a couple of years ago. And when he was quite a bit older than me, he was chairman and CEO of Toshiba USA, a Japanese, very wise and old, old meaning, you know, in terms of knowledge and wisdom, and also by age, several years older than me. And he took me to Japan, a couple of these very rustic and uh, rural, very spiritual monastery, several monastery. And that completely changed my, I felt a profound transformation. I started to look back. And by that time, by the way, I came, I've already published like five books and they were all technical and management related and was highly followed in the academic community and it was being taught, but it, it didn't have a soul. You know, those are not soulful things that I wrote. It was more, how do you grow business? How do you change organization? That sort of a thing. And I was sitting in Dubai airport and you know, I started thinking about all this. I felt hollow. All that I was feeling very hollow. And I was in Dubai airport sitting there. I had a layover for like nine, 11 hours. And <laughs> I wrote out the outline for Everything Connects. And what I wrote sitting at the airport, I was really, and I, I was dabbling with this, you know, this kind of like a writing of writing from your soul. It's not for any, it's really not for anybody. It's for yourself. Yeah. It's talking about your journey, you know, how you create resiliency, how do you live in the moment? How do you connect the dots? That sort of a thing. And I send this outline to a couple of publishing houses that I knew by that time very well. 
I sent this to McGraw Hill and a couple other places. By the time I came back from that trip, by that time I just started to write for Fast Company and about now this is we're now talking almost like eight years ago. Yeah. Took me in a totally different path. I started to close my previous chapter and started this chapter and publish everything connects and connected the dot between my technical side and my life side. As a result, the learnings I have had uh, from my failures and from observing other people and from my what really makes me happy and what doesn't make me happy and, and whatnot. And I love that book. And the one thing that strikes me, I'm listening to you, and we'll get to your book, Lift, in a moment. I think you, your own journey seems to be uncannily connected to the messages the world needs to hear at a certain time, right? Which is, I think everything connects had that. So what are some of the things that, as you said at the Dubai airport and you wrote the book, that were connected in a way that you had not seen before? That, that's a fact that in really comes from who, you know, you asked me, did I know who I wanted to be? And, and what I realized is that who you want to be when you are, let's say, 19, like my son is now, and who you want to be in your 30s and who you want to be in your 40s. And now I'm, I'm in my 50s. So who you want to be in your 50s are different people. These are different chap. Your core may be the same, but your interest and, and all that changes. The reason I wrote Everything Connects, which was almost now seven, eight years ago, the first edition of it, was the fact that in order to connect with outside, you have to first connect inside. And when you connect with your inside, that allows you to connect with outside and allows you to create the value and the impact you want to make. It was a profound awakening for me. And I realized that when I was chasing the dream of like the typical Silicon Valley type entrepreneur, Silicon Valley in the context of notion, not geographical location. That's not who I wanted to be. I didn't want to be another tech, the typical tech entrepreneur who, even though that's what I wanted to be, but that's not what was making me feel fulfilled, right? So that was the basis of everything connects in the sense that you have to first connect with yourself. Well, how do you connect with yourself? Well, you have to become mindful. It's mindful about what you do, how you think about it, how you guide yourself, which allows you to be more creative. And as a result, you become more innovative and that's how you connect with the outside world. And, and with this varied interest of exposure to all kinds of uh, cultures and expertise, and I've been very fortunate. And there's a one line that you may remember, you know, we said that you have to become a omnivorous consciously omnivorous, which I mean by that is not how what you eat, is what you consume in terms of knowledge and understanding your ability to be open, consciously being open and compassionate. That allows you to define yourself, right? That's how you explore and find yourself. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. 
as I'm listening to you, one thing that also strikes me is your ability to know when it's time to move on and do something different. In this, if, if I relate this to our listeners, many of them are successful. Many of them may think, oh, I might want to start a little business or something. Like Faisal makes it sound so easy. He's just start one business after another and he knows when to move on. It's not so easy for me. Like how, how do you know when it's time to let go of one thing and move on to another? I think sometimes the change happened because you want to change, right? Most of the time, actually, change happened because you were just forced to change. Outside situation or market condition or whatever, your family situation that forces you to change. Going back to uh, everything connects, you know, that financial crisis that between oil and oil and the residue of that in 12 and 13 happened. My customers were very big clients. You know, they were corporations. And I was also not being very fulfilled with chasing these things that I was chasing. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of a combination of that triggered me to come to the next uh, phase of my life where I started the company that I run now called Shadoka, which, which is really, I wanted to do impactful work. Because my expertise is technology, and I wanted to do the impactful work with technology. Then I furthermore said that I want to actually, I've worked all my life in private sector and for money. I want to do something that actually allows me to help our, this country that I got so much from. My spouse comes from here. My sons comes from here. All my family, friends are here. Professionally, all the fulfillment I got accomplishment I got is from here. So I want to do something. And what better way to do that is and then try to help our government. So for the last five years, I've been really entrenched with our federal government, especially in the area of defense and otherwise. And I find this work very fulfilling. It's frustrating, but it's also fulfilling because it's frustrating in the sense that, you know, this political sea change and all kind of stuff. But um, my work is not political nature. It's trying to make the country stronger. So I find that work very fulfilling. It wasn't just thinking that, oh, I want to change. It was a situation because where the market was, but it also was what I wanted to gain from a personal point of view. And furthermore, you know, at that time, my mother started getting sick and older and she was living with us. I wanted to spend more time with my mother and taking care of her. It allowed me to look at life in a very different way. And I completely changed the, I mean, I reinventing business model is my expertise. I kind of reinvented my own business model (laughs) where I wanted to focus in a way where I could still take my products and idea and provide to my own fulfillment that has a greater impact. And that's what that chapter. And now I'm in a different chapter. We'll, we'll talk about it, you know, in the context of Lyft and, and whatnot. Well, you mentioned your mom and I have, my mom's older than yours, but also I stepped into the role of being responsible for my mother. But if we could take this last year in your life almost as, a, as an example of all the different things we can juggle at the same time and, if I'll give you a little preview and then we'll just go deeper, you know, you have, you have a new book out immediately became a wall street journal bestseller that you are not aiming for that. You didn't yeah. even want to write the book necessarily. Yeah. Your son is dealing with some health challenges. Yeah. Your mother requires a lot of your attention. And yet all of that's going on at the same time. 
Can we just break it apart first and then maybe see how you do that dance? Sure. Um, tell us about what it's like to be a father to a son who has was diagnosed with something that's rare for someone that young and it suddenly changed what you all have to deal with. Yes, my son is he's 19 years old now and he he's a freshman uh, right middle of the pandemic he graduated from high school and went to Hofstra. Mm-hmm. I thought okay, well I can now slow down. These are <laughs> my mother just moved to a nursing home because we had to do that by nature of her health condition and I said okay, I have a very rewarding work and a company that focus on helping our country so I'm I'm just going to take it easy. And then this is like uh, almost a year and a half ago now. I mean, Fast Company and my publicist, but then I said, maybe it's time to do another book. I said, no, I don't feel like doing book. I haven't written anything in a couple of years. And I've slowed down writing articles. And what am I going to write about? The world is in a kind of complete shamble. I mean, I get like my mind goes in thousand chatter. And if you remember, I mean, we have pandemic, Nobody knows what's going to happen. The major climate change technology is just one in the totally weird directions in many ways. Some are good, some are bad. I said, I, I don't really have, I don't know what I can write about. But and I started thinking about it and I was kind of outlining this notion that, look, there are these four drivers that I see, you know, which is pandemic and climate change and industry, you know, the fourth industrial revolution. And then also, you can imagine, you know, you also we suffered major, crazy, divisive political climate yeah. through misinformation, which we are still dealing with, right? In many ways, and midst of all that, my my son got diagnosed with cancer. So even though I said I'm going to do this, I said no, I can't do this, and I, I got to take care of it. This is like beginning of last year. I was saying that we're going to slow down. I said, okay, we, we need to do some housework, just like you got rid of your apartment. Right. We got to do some renovations. I'm going to redo our bedroom. It's just me and my wife, Chris, going to redo some stuff. So I actually was middle of planning of all that. So we had to hunker down and figure out what's wrong with him. We got him on a track of recovery. This was now April timeframe, April, May timeframe last year, exactly around this time. And I said, okay, well, we can do one or two things. We can just kind of get consumed with grief and uncertainty and, and whatnot with what's hap- what is happening with them. I have this story. I have Randy Pasha's book called The Last Lecture. It's been an inspiration for me forever. You know? mm-hmm. And I went back to that because it it's literally sits next to me. And, and I said, what would Randy do? And they said, like, I'm paraphrasing it. It's like when all hell break loose, you actually hunker down mm-hmm. and try to tackle that beast in the context of the all hell broken loose. So I did exactly that. I said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop renovating my home because that will be a defeat. I'm not going to stop writing the book. I'm going to write the book. I'm not going to give up working with my client, the government client, because they depend on me in the middle of a bunch of different, very important things. I'm going to carry on all this. And I'm going to center myself with all the things I've talked about and all the things I have learned. And I'm going to tackle one thing at a time and I'm put together a plan. I don't care about the outcome. I've dove into it, said, okay, I'm going to everything I can to find the best 
care I can find for my son with my wife. And we did that. We marshaled best resource from every part of the world. I mean, medical, spiritual, food, whatever. And by the way, that, that is a story by itself. I was always in tune with very much different kind of cultural element and food sources and I'm an avid cook. I'd taken that skill to the next level where I, I now cook for him regularly. And that has a big impact on his recovery. I don't actually feel that I'm overwhelmed because I can compartmentalize these things in different ways. And so we finished writing, and I, I said, okay, I'm, if I'm going to write the book, I'm going to need help because I want to get a lot of research. And, you know, in the book, I talk about healthcare because I learned a lot about healthcare between my mother and my son's condition. And midst of all this, I set up a different organization called The Next Chapter, and I've dedicated the next chapter's proceed to two things. One is obviously cancer research because what I've encountered with my son. And other one is because of my love of my food, there is a phenomenal chef called Jose Andres, and he has an organization. Yes, of course. Kitchen. I've been donating to his organization for a while. And I've kind of dedicated next chapter's threefold goal, which is I'm going to create intellectual property that can be utilized by anybody and everybody to take them to the next, to their next chapter. So it's a learning from all the things that I've learned and learning from others. And we've started to package that. So Lyft has a course and everything connects, which I, again, I, I kind of forgot about that. I wrote everything connects, but this whole journey with Lyft kind of triggered all that. So we've got Lyft, uh, you know, we've got everything connects and there's a series of courses that'll be coming out of that. And we are going to, I'm doing another one next year that's going to call reInvent. It's around rethinking the business models for social impact. Next chapter got born out of all this crisis. You know, all this got born out of this crisis. And I obviously would, I would continue to do my work with Shadoka for the commercial purposes and primarily focusing with our, our U.S. government. So what I learned, Akim, is that crisis actually is the best catalyst for reinvention, personal and otherwise, right? So had I not had those crises, I wouldn't be writing. I wouldn't have thought of Lyft. I wouldn't have written. I mean, I thought of writing Lyft, but it just, it just taken a totally different path and I wouldn't have launch next chapter. I wouldn't be launching, relaunching everything connects. And certainly not say, okay, well, this proceed is not for profit. It's for doing something that means deeply to me. One of the messages I'm, I'm getting from you as you're talking is when crisis shows up, have the courage to walk into it, right? Which yep. is what you did. And my own life, I just want to share the story. I had forgotten it, but so I'm connecting my own dot here. When when my mother at the age of 92 had a stroke, that year I flew to Germany 10 times from here. I was in Germany a lot, but that experience, I remember sitting in a hotel room and realizing, you know, everything that I want to do, I can do from anywhere in the world because yep. I was so often not home. And that's when I sold my business. I realized yep. That business I don't need anymore. But that yeah. wouldn't have happened if my mom didn't have a stroke and, yeah. and I had to take care of my mother, right? Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, and if you remember, I mean, my story is very similar to yours because yeah. it is uh, middle of uh, when my mother got sick and I wanted to spend more time. That's when I exited out of my last business and started Shadoka. And I said, I wanted to contribute to our government, right? So it is, I mean, you know, crisis, there's two types of crisis. It's personal crisis, which individualistic, and then the, the outside crisis, right? So you talk about perhaps the reason Lyft is getting and gaining so much momentum is because I mean, I've kind of encountered both at the same time in yeah. the sense that, you know, and, and obviously lost some friends and family members during COVID. So that combination, it's a perfect storm, right? Out of the storm comes something maybe good. It's kind of that kind of mentality. Well, and what I'm thinking, you wrote Everything Connects was published in 2014. Yeah. And- this is almost the, the everything connects for the times we're in right now, right? It's, That's right. The times are different, but yeah. let's say the spiritual principles or the governing principles are not different. The circumstances have just changed, right? That's right. Now, the other thing I do want to ask this, because I, I'm sure if listeners are listening to you, they're going, I don't know where Faisal gets his energy from. Like I couldn't do half of what Faisal is doing and he makes it all sound so easy. He says he can compartmentalize, but I couldn't do all that stuff. So what kind of guidance would you have for folks who are going, well, that sounds great, but I just want to start one little business and that feels daunting to me. The way I look at it now versus let's say five years ago or even 10, 15 years ago, the more skillful you get, the more you can actually also encounter unknown because you know you have the confidence that you have some skills, right? So that's number one. Number two is that we kind of talked about mindfulness, but you know it's really a very important practice because it teaches you patience. It teaches you to let go of things that you cannot control and makes you focus on doing whatever that you're supposed to do. So, you know, we talked about and mindful, uh, practicing mindfulness is not just sitting there and meditating. I mean, it could be anything. It could be writing. You could be listening to music. It could be jogging. Uh, for me, it's cooking. Like when I cook, I don't think about anything. I mean, and, and I've gotten quite good at it. That allows you to say, okay, well, if I'm going to write, I'm going to write. If I'm going to deal with our governmental crisis, then I'm going to deal with that. You know, And if I'm going to deal with what needs to be done for my mother or my son, you focus on that. It comes from having that kind of discipline. Discipline is very important. You can't do what I do if you don't have the discipline. And it's not just working like seven by 24. I don't work seven by 24. It's, it's a, most people who listens to me thinks that I work seven by 24. Actually, I used to work a lot lot harder and a lot longer when I was younger. I don't, you know, and, and because there is some things that are, that you have when you get older, if you're lucky, one is that you're wiser. So you know what not to do, right? Yeah. You have skills so you can do things faster. You have connections so you can call and marshal up help where you need the help. And, and number three is that you can really say, okay, well, is the process of elimination. It's saying no, right? So, I mean, it's like, I, do I really have to do this today? You can say, no, I don't have to do this today. So, it, it sets your priority and allows you to prioritize what needs to be done. So, anybody who wants to start a business or change their life or find their next calling, you kind of have to look at yourself and it's almost like a 
next version of you, not not discarding of your old version because you can't. And what that means, you take the best and the worst from your past and apply it to present, meaning whatever mistakes you made, you hopefully wouldn't make the same mistakes, number one, and whatever skills that you have gained, maybe you can apply it to your next chapter or next act, as you say, you know, so, so that's really how you do it, or, or at least try to do it. And don't worry about the outcome. I, I've really I, stopped worrying about outcome. I so appreciate that you ended with don't worry about the outcome. Thank you for that. And your, your wisdom just is this, just that was full of just wonderful things you just shared. So as we wrap up, if our listeners want to learn more about what you do, where should they go look for your books or your work? Where, where would you like to direct them? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just do a Google search, I guess. Pick and choose whatever that uh, talks to you. But I mean, obviously, they can go to my personal site, which is FaisalHawk.com. I write for Fast Company. There's a bunch of these articles that they can take it from there. By the way, if you remember, post uh, Everything Connects, one of the, when we did write a book called Survive to Thrive, which I made mm-hmm. it for free. Anybody can download that from the web. Whatever sings to you, can you can probably tap into it. And whatever I've done, maybe it will add some value to somebody. And if it does, then it's, that's the greatest satisfaction. I really don't have any ask or want or, or advertising for, for any of this stuff. I've really made all this very organic. Because I learned that you really can't control anything. I will repeat something that I actually, the Lyft course is coming out and there was a closing line. So I'll, I'll say that here as, you know, life isn't fair and life is not as easy, but it can be interesting. It can be interesting from many different point of view. And if you're lucky, you can find momentary joy and happiness from those interesting journeys. That's all you can help for. Nobody's life is perfect. Everybody has some sort of a crisis. Everybody has ups and downs. And that's, we should be great. We should be grateful for that and have compassion for the fact that we're all kind of in the same boat, regardless of the station of our lives. Thank you for being an interesting guest. (laughs) And thank you for, I hear this one, a wonderful sense of detachment from what things should be and just, just letting it be where it is. And of course, then co-creating from that, which is amazing. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Faisal. Always, always happy to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.